This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life, whose voice, you're certain to be captivated by. And today, Bob recalls the day that he left the home of his parents to become a U.S. Marine. My flight to San Diego arrived late that night. Must have been around 10 o'clock. We got in. I remember walking down and leading the plane with about six other guys that were enlisting from Portland. And we got there, and there wasn't anybody there to greet us. It was just people who were leaving and walking down the concourse. We had nobody to greet us. And I, I remember saying to the guy next to me, I said, Jesus, you would have thought they would have had the Marine Band down here to welcome us. So anyway, the area emptied out, and half a dozen of us just standing around there smoking and having a cigarette and talking when, geez, all of a sudden I heard this booming voice just fire at us. And I looked down that concourse and I could see this Marine on a real rapid clip walking fast. And uh, he was heading right towards us and cursing and, and commanding us to shut our mouths, put the cigarettes out and line up for formation for a roll call. And I was standing there, you know, when he appeared in front of us, you know, I looked at him, and boy, I mean, you could see he was sharp, real sharp. He had the campaign hat on. He had a starch khaki shirt, sergeant stripes on the sleeve. He had all the fruit salad and campaign ribbons on his chest. Shoes were shined like polished onyx. His jawline was as angular as you could ever get. He started yelling and cursing at us as he had us out of the boarding area by then and was telling us how ugly and how stupid we all were. We were the worst lot of human beings he'd ever seen. He didn't know what the Marine Corps had in his mind by taking people like us into the Marine Corps. We were at war. We needed men, not a bunch of weaklings from small little towns around the country. He said he was tempted to ship us all off over to the Navy. Maybe we would do better over there. And then he abruptly ended and told us to march, follow him and march on out of the airport. We get out in the airport and there's this big green bus with little yellow lettering all over it, you know. And we get on the bus, the bus is packed. The bus is full of people. And we get on the bus and it's like almost two, three to a seat. So he marches us all the way down the aisle of the bus, chest, chest to back, right, single file, all the way to the end. Turned, gave us an about face. So now that we're all in this line in the aisle, facing the front of the bus and told us to sit. So we all sat just tightly linked together and the bus was full and now the last plane had come in and we just we went we were going in my opinion we were going to Marine Corps Theater but I was more of a smart aleck that night that would quickly be taken care of the next night so we get to San Diego as we arrive on the base in the middle of the night we pull up outside the receiving barracks. And outside there's these rows of yellow footprints. Every Marine in the world remembers the yellow footprints. And the DI gets up in front and it was black as night on the bus. I mean, you couldn't barely, you could see his silhouette, but you could see the red glow in his eyes and his voice just came out and filled that bus. Now, when I tell you to, you will get off my bus and you will get on the yellow footprints. Do you understand? Yes, sir! They told us, you maggots got 20 seconds to get off of this bus 
and get on those yellow footprints and God help anybody who's on this bus after 20 seconds. And then he yelled, move. And boy, we just getting up and scrambling and pushing and shoving. Guys are climbing over seats and he's up there screaming and yelling and there's a DI outside the door. He's screaming and yelling and sure enough, when he got to 20 seconds, he just started kicking them in the butt and getting them off that bus. We scrambled outside. We got it under the yellow footprints. We stood there at attention. They were three guys and they were just, these DIs were just moving up and down each line of the rows. Looking at us, making comments about us, yelling at us, and then they told us a single file march into the barbershop. And we opened up the store, we marched into this barbershop, and there were four barber chairs and four barbers in there ready to go to work. And each time, man, those hands never stopped moving. They sheared off that hair until they hit a growth on the scalp. And if they drew blood, then they'd stop. Otherwise, everything is coming off. Anything that is outside of your follicle is going to get cut. And then the floor was just littered with all the really fashionable hairstyles that were very popular back home. But we didn't have any need for hairstyles down here because there would be no women. We would not see any women at all, actually, for quite a while. And so walking through the piles of the hairstyles, and we went in and we got issued our bucket and our toothbrush and razor and a lot of the parts of our uniform, underwear, soap, bar soap. And then we get up into the showers. So we're standing there, we got all this gear in our arms, and we're up there outside the shower. And a DI tells us, you men, have, you people have 60 seconds to get in that shower and scrub all that civilian dirt off your bodies. You're on Marine Corps ground. This is hallow property. This is holy property here. This is Marine Corps property. Get in that shower. You've got 60 seconds to scrub all that dirt off. Get dressed and fall outside in the large auditorium adjacent to the shower room. We jumped into the showers and the spray. And to help us along, because we had some people who not only were slow, they were, some of them really actually were very stupid, he decided to count down. So we're scrubbing and the steam are going. I hear this voice go, 48, 47, 46, move, 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 damn it, move. 45, 44, 43, I don't see you moving fast enough. I want you moving out of this shower room immediately. 39, 38, 36, and we busting our butts to get out of that shower. And we were half dry, half all naked, half dry, grabbing our uniforms, putting on our clothes, and running out into the next room through a gauntlet of cursing and yelling and shouting and swipes at our head to get us moving. Out on that floor to get out there in the auditorium. And when we come back, more of this story. And what a storyteller, folks. And again, we just find ordinary Americans around the country. These aren't professional writers, screenwriters, script writers. They're you. They're me. They're the person next door. Bob McClellan, The McClellan Files, his story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the McClellan Files and Bob McClellan's story about the beginning of his time as a U.S. Marine. Let's pick up where we left off. Our uniform consisted of a one, a pair of green trousers, bright white tennis shoes, a belt and that was untrimmed and that was so long and hung out of the back loop of my trousers like a tail. I had a bright yellow sweatshirt with a bold red Marine Corps emblem on the top. And everything else was in the bucket. I got out there and lined up across the tables. I had a Marine facing before me and a box on the table in front of me. Looking into the eyes of the Marine across from me and looking at what they had done to him, I realized he was a mirror to me now. I could only imagine what I looked like looking at him. He had the color of a billiard ball. I hadn't seen sunlight probably since he was born. His pale skin indicated that all the blood in his body must have retreated deep inside into his interior for safety, no doubt. His eyes were wide. You thought he got stuck by a cattle prod. He was afraid. You could, you could feel it. You could see it oozing from his pores. I just thought, my God. My God, you know, here I am. I'm looking at him. I'm thinking I'm a Frankenstein. I'm a half-made man. I got all the disgusting detritus and trash from my civilian life of character and weakness in my body, all of which the Marine Corps thoroughly intended to change. The DIs were walking up and down behind us, and now I I took things a little bit more seriously here now. I wasn't at the airport uh, shooting my mouth off. DIs told us to take everything that we brought with us, everything, and put it into the box. And into that box went all the pictures that I brought, pictures of my girlfriend, little mementos from home, little gifts from my mom to remind me of home, everything. My clothes, my underwear, everything went into the box. We were ordered to seal that box, address at home, and step back from the table. Stepping back from the table and looking at that box, I realized that box contained my past. It contained all those things that were so important in my life just hours ago. But I knew now it didn't matter to anybody down here. None of that mattered. Not your past. You don't matter. All that matters is do what you're told. You're going to get a new life. The new life you're going to get down here is going to be one of purpose. And you're going to have a purpose and you're going to learn to do it well. And from that purpose, you'll develop your values and your self-respect. Down here, you'll learn to know who you are, where you are, and what you are here to do. But right now, that was a far, far distance from where I stood that moment at the table. All I wanted to do standing at that table was to get the box. I'm sure everybody felt the same way in the room. Get on my clothes and get the hell out of there. I had three years of this ahead of me. D.I. told us to step back, went up and down the table, made sure everybody had done everything correctly, and then standing up in the front, he pointed to the single door at the end of the room, and he yelled, I'm going to give you maggots 20 seconds to get through that door and down those stairs on the yellow footprints. Move! And boy, we hit those doors hard. And going down that stairwell, when your feet aren't in unison, all you can hear is just a constant pounding, boom, 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 boom. 
uh, the stampeding going down those stairs. Yeah, men were pushing each other and shoving each other to get out of the way. Everybody had to get down. It wanted to get down there and be on those yellow footprints. This is not a place you want to piss anybody off. And so we were pushing and shoving. And then the other two DIs moved into the crowd like, like hyenas, like animals. And they came in and they'd isolate a weak recruit and they'd pull him off to the side. And they'd have him stand there in attention. There'd be one on either side of him. And they'd be yelling and screaming at him within centimeters of his, the skin on his face. And their eyes would be bulging and their jaws would be opening, gnawing. And just knew that if you just got anywhere and you're close to that mouth, they were going to devour you. Meanwhile, the rest of us, just blinded by the confusion and the panic of a mob, we just continue to push and fight our way down that stairwell. We look like blind men trying to flee a burning forest. Out the door onto the street, out on the yellow footprints, carrying our gear. We stood there, a real motley-looking crew standing on yellow footprints in the middle of the night. Nobody had any idea of time. Time was no longer important down here. You didn't have any time. Time was the luxury for Marines, not for recruits. Stood there in the dark, and the DI got up in front of us. And just to harass us, he'd come along, and he'd knock your clothes and stuff out of your hands tell you to pick it up off the deck and then he said because you people are so stupid you don't know left from right so what I'm going to do is I'm going to count really slow I want you to lock arms four abreast hold your gear and march when I tell you to ready forward march left right left started yelling at us because we weren't in unison left right and then out of nowhere God, people make me sick you're nothing but a bunch of cows you march like a bunch of cows get down on your cow faces get those cow faces into the deck and give me 25 push ups and dropping everything we had, we just hit the deck and took our face and put it into the ground and tried to pump out as many push-ups as we could. So he started yelling, get up, get up, damn it, get on your feet, get back into formation, get your gear, lock your arms, ready, forward, march, left. I want to hear you moo, he said. I want to hear you moo like cows. That's all you are, cows. Moo as we march. So we all started mooing and mooing and cadence. All that was missing was the cowbell. And so this cow, herd of cows, started to march its way with the cadence of the drill instructor. Left, moo, right, left, across the base. And anybody that saw us or anybody that heard us, they knew who we were. In the Marine Corps' eyes, we were the lowest form of life on earth. There's none lower. None lower than that. And we marched across the base to our Quonset huts. At 0400, they put us to bed. Told us to lie at attention in our bunks. Until Reveille. I remember lying there at attention. Listening to the jets taking off. My hut was adjacent to the San Diego runway. The only thing that separated me from freedom was a cyclone fence with Constantino wire on the top. 
the planes would be taking off in the pre-dawn hours, I knew they were going places. They were taking people far, far, far away from Platoon 3095. I knew they'd be headed north and east and west and south. But I also knew the plane that they had reserved for us was only going in one direction, west. My next stop would not be Portland. It'd be Da Nang. Lying there that night in that bed, I thought about being in the Marines. You know, a lot of men do. We think about, I want to be a Marine. But the distance between the desire to be one and to actually be one is a vast gulf. Young men join the Marines. They, most of them, I think, have something to prove to themselves and to others. And as the roar of the jet engines flew over my Quonset, I wondered what in the hell did I do? I wasn't interested in proving anything to anybody anymore. I just wanted to go home. When the lights clicked on at 0445 in the morning, a 50-gallon steel garbage can flew by my bunk and crashed into the galvanized steel wall of my Quonset hut, announcing reveling. The day that I had dreaded lying in my bunk that morning had now arrived. Thrown into the cauldron, I started my day one of my transformation from a civilian to a Marine. I was standing in formation by the time the bugle stopped blowing Reveille. And Reveille is, of course, the sunrise wake-up call of the U.S. Armed Forces. And we're there with Bob. He's, he's recounting this as if it happened to him yesterday because, folks, like so many memories in our lives, the big ones, they stick. They stick forever. And we're going to continue with his great storytelling from Bob McClellan. The McClellan Files. This one was called The Blast Furnace. What a writer. And there are so many of you out there like him with stories to tell. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We want to hear from you. We'll put you right on the air, just like we did Bob. Bob's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about everything here on this show. If you're interested in subscribing to our free and weekly newsletter in which we send you our five best stories, go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now we bring you a story that's become classic American folklore. The year 1947, the place, Roswell, New Mexico. Here's Jesse. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. In July of 1947, a man by the name of Mac Brazel heard an explosion somewhere on his ranch 
roughly 75 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. The following morning, the 48-year-old ranch foreman left on horseback to investigate the sound that he had heard. Strewn about on a remote desert field was the wreckage of an aircraft unlike any he had ever seen. The rancher then called the local sheriff, who inspected the crash site. Not knowing what to make of it, the sheriff then took some of the wreckage back to the station before calling nearby Roswell Army Airfield. Intelligence Officer Major Jesse Marcel was one of the very first to respond to the scene. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Because I was being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about all materials used in aircraft and in our air travel. This was nothing like that. It could not be. It could not have been. It was Major Marcel's commanding officer, Colonel William Blanchard, who ordered the recovery of the remaining wreckage that was left on the 8,000-acre ranch. Major Marcel described some of the material that he found. We found a piece of metal uh, about, about a foot and a half to two feet wide and about, about two or three feet long. It felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the, the thing about that got me is that you couldn't even bend it. You couldn't bend it. Even with a sledgehammer would bounce off it. So I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. And as of, as of now, I don't know what it was. Whatever it was, something had crashed at Foster Ranch and scattered debris over several acres. While military personnel gathered the unidentified wreckage, Major Jesse Marcel then loaded his trunk with items collected from the site and drove back to the military base. But first, he would make a little stop along the way. The Major's son, Jesse Marcel Jr., was 11 years old at the time and would remember that night for the rest of his life. My dad was dispatched by the base commander, who was Colonel Blanchard, to go out there and, and collect some residue to see if this was a military aircraft or if it was a V-2 rocket from the White Sands Proving Grounds or whatever was crashed on this rancher's land. And, uh, and he did go out there along with a CIC agent, uh, Sheridan Cavett, who was, that was the forerunner of the CIA, I believe. And uh, so they picked up the res you know, representative portions of the debris that was out there. So he's going to uh, drive it into the base that night. Uh, our house happened to be on the way to the base, but he realized there was something very extraordinary about this wreckage. And he wanted my mother and myself to see this, because uh, he realized we'd probably never see anything like this again. So that's what he did. He <clears throat> did work a little bit out of his way to our house, and uh, he uh, positioned some of the wreckage on the kitchen floor of our house, woke my mother and myself up, so we could see what he collected uh, out in the desert there. And uh, it was 1 o'clock in the morning, or thereabouts, very late in the morning. And, and he said, well, look at this. I want you to look at this now. I think this is parts of what they call, I think he said, flying saucer. And, uh, and that had a very special connotation, not knowing exactly what a flying saucer was, but I realized it was extraordinary, whatever. And uh, he said uh, the connotation was this came from outer space. Outer space or not, the items brought home that night were highly unusual. Metal fragments, um, beams with strange letters or writing on them. Uh, yeah, I didn't keep any of it. Uh, people ask, well, why didn't you keep some of it? Well, I couldn't because it was part of Air Force property. And uh, some people say, well, you brought, your father broke security by bringing this highly secret stuff to your house. But it wasn't classified at the time. Classified later, 
but it wasn't classified when he brought it to the house. Major Jesse Marcel then gathered up the wreckage and took it to Roswell Army Airfield. First Lieutenant Walter Hout was the public information officer at the 509th Bomb Group based in Roswell during 1947. What happened next was nothing short of bizarre. I was instructed by Colonel Blanchard to put out a press release which in effect stated that we had in our possession a flying saucer. In essence, it said that we have in our possession a flying disc. It uh, was picked up on a ranch, and I can't remember if I said northwest of Roswell, brought into town by Mac Brazel, the ranch foreman, uh, and the material was flown to higher headquarters, 8th Air Force, General Ramey. Newspapers ran headlines about the crashed flying saucer that came down 75 miles northwest of Roswell. William Brazel, son of rancher Mac Brazel, who found the wreckage, remembers reading about it the following morning. I was not out at the ranch at the time, and I picked up an Albuquerque paper, and here's my dad's picture looking at me, and I thought, well, I wonder what he's done now. So I went on to read the article, and I told Shirley, I said, well, I guess I better go out to the ranch, because they said that he, the Air Force had asked him to stay in Roswell. Anyway, they swore dead to secrecy, and I went out to the ranch and stayed until he got back. I asked him what he got into, and, and I kept asking him questions, and he said, well, he said, I told the Air Force I wouldn't tell anybody. He said, you're probably better off without knowing. Regardless of being sworn to secrecy, the word was out, and radio stations all over the world began broadcasting reports of a crashed flying saucer. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange discs had been found and inspected sometime last week. Our correspondents in Los Angeles and Chicago have been in contact with Army officials endeavoring to obtain all possible late information. Joe Wilson reports to us now from Chicago. The Army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucers. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the discs which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disc landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W.W. W. Brazel was the man who discovered the saucer. Colonel William Blanchard of the Rockwell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looked like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Research Center at Wright Field, Ohio. A few moments ago, I talked to officials at Wright Field, and they declared that they expect the so-called flying chopper to be delivered there, but that it hasn't arrived as yet. When we return, first-hand accounts from former military and civilian alike of the UFO crash at Roswell. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we return now to Jesse and the site of the UFO crash at Roswell, New Mexico. The 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the disks which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disk landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W.W. Brizel was the man who discovered the topper. Colonel William Blanchard of the Rockwell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. Shortly after these reports of a crashed flying saucer were broadcast, announcer Frank Joyce from radio station KGFL in Roswell received an interesting communication from someone claiming to be from Washington, D.C. I got a phone call. Well, I got a number of phone calls, but the one that really got my attention was purportedly from the Pentagon. There was young lady on the line saying, Colonel so-and-so, this is the Pentagon calling. And this was within a few minutes of it going out on the wire. And the voice on the line says, "Uh, who is this? I tell him, he said, you put that story on on the air about the flying saucers? And I mean, his voice was, you know, the type that really conveys menace and power. And I said, yes, I did. And he says, you're going to get in a lot of trouble uh, for this or made some some threatening comment and I said look I'm a civilian you can't talk to me this way you can't treat me this way you can't tell me what to do in stories I put on the air and he says I'll show you what I can do and bang hung up the phone the KGFL announcer wasn't the only one to receive a mysterious phone call from someone claiming to be from Washington George Roberts, the owner of the radio station, was also contacted. I got a call from Washington from one of the offices of one of the senators saying, look, if you put out any stories on this this thing, you're going to lose your license. And it's not going to be over a period of time. It's going to be the same day that we tell you that you're off the air. If these intimidating phone calls were in fact from Washington, Why would the military in Roswell admittedly put out a press release about flying saucers? First Lieutenant Jack Trowbridge had been assigned to the 509th Bomb Group in 1947. He was one of several military personnel who was then told not to talk about it. Jesse brought some of the stuff into the intelligence office. Their material had some peculiar properties. For instance, it looked like Hershey bar wrappings and but you squeeze it up in your hand as hard as you could, let go, and it returned originally to the original shape, instantly. And uh, so we looked at it and played with it a while, and then everybody went back to work. Later that day, boom, nobody knows anything, either shut up, nothing happened, uh, etc. And when you're in the service, you do what they say to do. While military officials out of Roswell were distributing press releases about crashed alien spacecraft, the U.S. military would use Major Jesse Marcel to take the fall. They took pictures, of course. They had a whole flock of microphones there. They wanted me to, to they wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. So all I could do is keep a mouth shut. And General Ramey is the one who discussed or uh, told the, pa- the, the newspapers, I mean the newsmen, 
what it was and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, which we, we both knew differently. Here again is Lieutenant Jack Trowbridge. What he had to show the press was really a weather balloon. This stuff was not a weather balloon, what he brought back. So he was forced to lie to the press, I would say. I don't think he was too happy about it, but you do what you're told again. You're in the service, you followed orders. And they were afraid of the American public panicking with this knowledge. I don't think that would have happened, but I, the word came down from up above and you do what it says. Could it have simply been a weather balloon? How could have all these experienced ranking military professionals have gotten it all so very wrong? Frankie Dwyer was a 13-year-old girl who was spending the day with her father, the firefighter, down at the station where he worked when a state trooper came in with a piece of the wreckage. When I would wad it up, it was like I had nothing in my hand. I couldn't feel it touching my skin. It was real weird. Drop it on the table and it was just like water. They all seem to mention this type of metal that looks like aluminum foil with otherworldly properties, and many of them report that they were intimidated by officials soon after handling the debris. Here again is Frankie Dwyer. He had this club or stick or whatever it was, and he would, was beating it on his hand. And he would hit it. Every time he would say something, he'd hit his hand. And he said, I want you to know you were never there. I didn't understand what he meant, because I said, yes, I was. And he said, no, you weren't. I said, yes, I was. And he said, can't you get this through your head? You never saw anything. You were not there. You don't know anything. And he said, you know, this is a big desert out here. We can just take you out in the middle of this desert, and no one will ever find your bodies. He said, you'll be nothing but bones, and nobody will ever know what happened to you. And I told him I would not talk about it. And what about reports of alien bodies recovered from the crash? No. As far as I know, an alien spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. If the United States Air Force did recover alien bodies, they didn't tell me about it either. And I want to know. The mortician for Roswell in 1947 was a man named Glenn Dennis. He too received a strange phone call in the middle of the night. Well, our mortuary had the contract for all military services out at the Roswell Army Airfield. And this uh, gentleman called and said he was a mortuary officer at the base. He needed some information. I said, what do you need? And he said, uh, how many uh, hermetically sealed infant caskets do you have? Three and a half, four foot in stock. And I said, we don't have any. I said, what's going on? He said, that's not important. I said, well, it is important also. But anyway, then I hung up. And then he uh, called back later and he said, uh, I need more information. And uh, you want to know what embalming chemicals that would alter the tissue, the stomach contents, and what is our preparation for... Uh, taking care of bodies and laying out in the elements for several days. 
And I said, you're the mortuary officer and you're asking me because I do it your way, you know. I've tried to find out who I was talking to. The mortician trying to get to the bottom of this strange request. His girlfriend at the time just happened to be a nurse who was working at Roswell Army Airfield the night they allegedly brought in the bodies. And it looks like what you see today, most of the little diagrams, you know, the four fragile fingers and the long arm, real short joint, the large eyes. She said the heads were almost completely demolished, but they could see they only had two orifices. They didn't have earlobes, they had two ear canals. The mouth was only about one inch. And that's the way she described it to me. And I was with her till about 11.30 that day, and then at 3.30 that afternoon, her supervisor called and said, your friend has been transferred out. And I had a serial number and everything else, but I never have found her to this day. I've never made contact with her. So. People from all walks of life tell a very similar story. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Did officials at Roswell Army Air Base get it wrong when they told the media that they had a flying saucer in custody? I was instructed by Colonel Blanchard to put out a press release, which in effect stated that we had in our possession a flying saucer. Could all of these people simply have mistaken a weather balloon for a flying saucer? According to the official report from the Pentagon, that is exactly what happened. Air Force activities which occurred over a period of many years have been consolidated and are now represented to have occurred in two or three days in July 1947. Bodies observed in the New Mexico desert were probably test dummies that were carried aloft by U.S. Air Force high-altitude balloons for scientific research. The unusual military activities in the New Mexico desert were high-altitude research balloon launch and recovery operations. These are the stories of ordinary people who went to their graves swearing that what they had witnessed was not of this earth. Or maybe it was just a weather balloon. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything 
here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business to history and everything in between. And this next story is a series that we've been hitting on for quite some time, our Rule of Law series. And by the way, as you listen to this story, you're going to be wondering, well, when does the law come in? Well, in so many of our lives, the law just comes in. And when it comes in, we're not too happy. We're wondering how the heck it happened in the first place. Our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story from a Venezuelan named Luis Rodriguez, who also spent some time in London, which explains the interesting mix of accents you're about to hear. Now let's hear Luis's story. The specific things that my mother was involved in was starting the first school for burnt children. Burnt children in poor countries are deemed as an added weight that people don't want to deal with. And so they were usually left on the streets. And so the first school actually needed to be almost a boarding school. The incredible thing is the first time that this school was put together, the community didn't want these burnt children because of the stigma that it brought. The community grew to a point that children needed school, and so the school opened up to both non-burnt plus burnt children, and so it transformed the interaction to where the community embraced the school and loved having the burnt children within their community to the point that they started caring for them. And then suddenly, all of that got nationalized. Taken over by the government. And shut down. Isn't that insane? The volatility of oil causes havoc on planning, which causes issues with respect to management of policies. Especially if oil production is 25% of your country's economy, as Venezuela's is. That created a source of populism that got enacted into power with Chavez in 1998. The late president, Hugo Chavez. The perverse thought process that drives what's happened in Venezuela is that by making people have to rely on the government for the most basic of necessities, you've now created a way of very cheaply influencing power on people. I think 80% of all food sources now come from the Venezuelan government. Coupled by the fact that at that point in time, oil was at 100, so it's giving you plenty of money to enact policies that are not able to be withstood with any kind of reasonable oil price eventually. It all fueled this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of the Messiah coming, us being given the power and it being enacted by the person because money is coming in that has nothing to do with him, but it's being attributed, you know, the benefit to this person. Things started getting unraveled. So this is kind of 2002, 2003. There was a stop to all economic activity in Venezuela. And that continued to grow into these massive marches every day to enact our ability to say, hey, we're not happy with this. And that finalized with this kind of march towards the presidential palace. And I, I remember, you know, you're talking about almost a million people marching. And what ended up happening was we were met by the National Guards 
and enacting force through bayonets, through snipers, starting kind of just taking people down. You know, I was quite young at the time. I was um, 20, 20, you know, 20, 21 at the time. Yeah, but my brother was 17. Were their parents okay with this? I'm not sure they were, but they didn't have a choice. Like, we really, really felt like this is... By being here, we're inspiring change. And running with my brother to be at the forefront of this, because I really felt like being at the front was where we wanted to be in this fight. And I... I, um... And then I, I lost them through all the, all the smoke. And I remember that, I, this, this kind of just, because we were rushing against the, the National Guard. And suddenly there was this massive amount of smoke, uh, which was tear gas. And I suddenly lost them. I couldn't see them. And I just, this, my, my heart just kind of just sank. And I was like, what, I, what have I done? And then the person right next to me got shot in the head, um, and, um... 19 people would be killed that day. Everything kind of came to, came to this somber conclusion of, do I really need to be here? Um, I found my brother, thankfully, but now it was just a case of, let's just survive and get out of here. There's no, there's no, um, no bravery in, in being shot for nothing. And this kind of just cold uh, realization that maybe, maybe by doing this, we aren't achieving anything but just the death of ourselves. And so this is a very um, disheartening and and um, sad, sad moment. Did Luis have any feelings, though, that he might have been abandoning the cause? <sighs> um, no. I, you know, at that, at that point in time, I, I kind of just said, I'm a foot soldier right now, at this moment in time in my life. And I can be more than that at some point, hopefully. And so I'd rather enable being more than be a foot soldier right now in something that I don't believe in anymore. And what a story we're hearing, and that's Luis Rodriguez's story. And again, we're getting some insight into what happened in Venezuela. Because my goodness, it was a train wreck coming for a couple of decades. And so many countries who experience these kinds of problems, well, it's rule of law in the end that causes them. When we come back, more of our Rule of Law series, more of Luis Rodriguez's story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories 
and Luis Rodriguez's story of being a part of the grassroots uprising against Venezuela's socialist dictatorship. That is, until he concluded that his purpose in life was something more than being a mere foot soldier. My thinking was, at the time, energy is this kind of potent enabler for good. You know, you, you still need the tractor that is plowing the field to plow the field, but it's the fuel that gets into it that enables that tractor to move. The fact that petrol is what makes planes be able to be commercially viable. And so I want to be in energy, and where the rubber met the road for me was in looking to really learn it from the ground up. I felt that the issue in Venezuela was it gets politicized without actually knowing what's going on. And so I wanted to be in the ground at a well site understanding what was going on. So I joined ExxonMobil. And I worked with Exxon for a little while until it got nationalized. This was in 2005. And so when the nationalization was happening or is about to happen, basically anybody who had signed the referendum against Chavez, who was the president back then, got told, you know, that you're not longer going to have a job here. And basically a list was made of people who had signed the referendum and it was used quite loosely to basically influence choices of employment or not. And so this drove me to want to seek other horizons. That got amplified by the fact that having lived through being in the forefront of activism at the time, and seeing people die next to me. All these things kind of molded into just wanting to get away from it, to be able to breathe. And um, it's gonna be funny, but uh, funny in that the place that I got offered a job was by a company called Schlumberger in Fort Smith, Arkansas, to become a frack engineer. And I was like, I don't know what this frack thing is. I don't know where Fort Smith, Arkansas is, <laughs> but you know what, I'll, I'll take it. I didn't have any big expectations um, because I didn't really know a lot about Arkansas. The people whom I spoke to about Arkansas didn't have a lot of nice things to say about it. And I really loved Arkansas, actually. I found people to be so warming. The state is just beautiful. And the reality is, I was in a rig in the middle of nowhere, 20 hours a day. It could be more, actually. So, um, those first few years were a lot of hours. When I say 20 hours a day, I remember actually when Claudia arrived, my wife, I would get home sometimes at 10, 11, and leave at two to three. And that was very consistent. Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays. Uh, she didn't like it at the time, but she was supportive. You know, she made a lot of sacrifices, leaving family, leaving her work, and coming to join me. But I think we did them thinking there's something that we want to create together, and so this will mean sacrifices, whichever way we take it, uh, as long as as we know that this isn't it, that we're working towards something more, I think that gave us both comfort that we'd eventually make it to where we want it to be, the way that we wanted it to be. And very quickly, 
got introduced to what you know an engineer is supposed to be doing this is what you're really going to be doing and, and most of it was just cleaning trucks and fixing trucks just frack trucks and so I started my life in the United States cleaning trucks in essence in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas which you didn't exactly need an engineering degree for you know at the time I just I just felt joy at doing something and doing it for myself and so I didn't feel like it was beneath me. I didn't feel, I, I just felt like, you know, this is something that I'm gonna do the best that I can, period. And it ended up to where it was just this interesting flow of things where, you know, shale started to grow. Thanks to the fracking done by those frack trucks, where their shooting of high pressure water down the wells opened up the dense shale rock and the oil and gas inside of it that previously couldn't be opened. And so I was the first engineer in Arkansas because at some point they needed engineering talent and then suddenly all these frack trucks started to break and I had an understanding of how they could be fixed better and that yielded growth into managing people. And so, you know, this this kind of snowball effect of positivity around the growth of energy coincided with my growth within the industry, which was beautiful. It all came to a very abrupt end in kind of 2008, 2009, when I had to let go of a lot of people I was managing in Bryan, Texas. At the time, now, we'd had Diego, my first son, and all these things were kind of pointing to I'd be moving all over the place. You need to settle and do something that not only goes for you and your immediate family, but for people beyond that. But very quickly realized, I think I can do this by myself and I can do it in a way that is true to the way that I want to start a company. And thus, Rise Energy began. And this is October of 2014, right before oil and gas prices crashed, actually. Not because I thought they were going to crash. <laughs> And uh, at the beginning, it was pretty tough just because you can imagine you're going out to raising money and the asset that you're investing in doesn't make any money uh, because the costs were too high for, for the benefits of what it was producing. Literally, no play was economic with the cost structure that you had pre-crash and the crash commodity prices. There might have been one-offs, there might have been like exceptions, but it was the exception rather than the rule. So that made it tough because you're now going to pitch something that in essence worth less than what you're gonna pay. You had to have some conviction that things were gonna turn around. I talked to a lot of people uh, and, and you know, some rejected me flat out, so uh, for X, Y, or Z. I mean, in some ways you, you really do have to speak to a lot of people and, and that, that both enables you to learn from those experiences and be better at the next experience and how you think about those interactions. I quit my job to do it. And so there was like, I was committed. I, I don't necessarily um, say that that's a good thing, but that's what I did. And you know, I had a dwindling bank account and I had a set time that I needed to get it done. Uh, otherwise I was gonna have to go back and find something. And so, you know, whether that came through, I, I don't think I necessarily, you know, played the card willfully, but it probably just 
imbibed a lot of how I came across. Maybe at first energetically, hopefully towards the end not desperate. At the lowest point I was within only two months of what we were spending on a monthly basis, uh, which put a lot of unease on us and on me. Um, thankfully, ended up raising 11.4 million from three private individuals who really believed in me. And so that was the nascency, and it was just me, of Rise Energy in February of 2015. And then in January of 2016, a very large private equity, NCAP, came in and said, we love what you are doing and we'd like to increase that 20-fold. And we would not be here without them today. The team has grown from, you know, me in, in a coffee shop uh, to now 50 employees. The, the thing that I look forward most in my work is empowering people. And it was a big part of why I started the company. When you give people the right environment, it's like magic. And that is so true, and we all know it when you give people the right environment. It is magic. And my goodness, what a story coming from Venezuela and watching the government run an operation and an industry to America where you've got all of these companies competing for customers, competing to lower prices, competing to do things better. Uh, Luis Rodriguez took advantage of that. And not without problems and not without worry, as we heard, just a few months away from not being able to pay the bills to someone coming in and investing more money. And that's what private equity folks do. And that's why if you're ever running a business and you ever need some money, my goodness, you like capital. You're willing to pay a return on that or you're willing to give part ownership for that. And that's, that's the joy of capital markets. There's human capital and there's capital capital. And to make the world hum and create all these jobs and create the economy we know and all the taxes that come from them, we've got to think about capital. When we come back, more of Luis Rodriguez's story here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories in the final portion of Luis Rodriguez's remarkable life story and life journey. Luis is one of the three million Venezuelans who fled their socialist dictatorship, and he has since worked his way up from cleaning fracking trucks in Arkansas to now having his very own energy exploration company. Let's continue the story. The United States, unlike any other country in the world, pretty much any other country in the world, Mineral ownership is private, and that is very important. At some point during the occupation of the West, the government decided to say, hey, we're going to give one mile by one mile, or depending if you, I think if you were married or something to that effect, you got two miles by, by, by one mile. And you're going to own not just the surface, but you're going to own everything that is underneath all the way to the center of the earth. Everything. 
the United States being the United States, people started saying, well, you know what, I really like the surface, but there's this other person who seems to really want to pay for my minerals. Such as this guy, Luis Rodriguez. So I'm just going to sell it. And so things started to get segregated. And so now the surface owner and the mineral owner might be two completely different people in two completely different states that have no relationship with each other. And then furthermore, you know, people would say, you know what, I'm just going to sell you my copper rights underneath me, but I'm going to maintain my oil and gas rights. I'm just going to sell you my gas rights and, and so on and so forth. Or I'm just going to sell you from surface to 200 feet below the surface and everything else I'm going to keep. So now you're dividing plots of land without us even getting into the fact that as you inherited them and people had seven kids and, and these had six and these had four and three, you're now dividing it into hundreds of pieces. And so the permutations are incredible from the standpoint of subdividing these things. But then the other interesting thing is that the way that these contracts get negotiated is I'm going to give you some sort of a monitoring incentive up front. You get that money, it's yours to keep. It can be from $1 to tens of thousands of dollars per acre, per one acre. It depends on where you're at and the prospectivity of what's underneath you. But then the contract also says, hey, you know what? We need to do something as far as producing your minerals in a given amount of time. And if we don't do that, then the contract goes null and you keep the bonus that we gave you and now you can negotiate with anybody else. If we do drill and we start producing, then you get a royalty stream of sorts. In general, it's kind of 20, 25% of the revenue is now going to be yours of anything that's produced there. So now you not only did get a bonus, but you also are getting a royalty stream. And so the ownership, when you get outside of cities, can be tens, sometimes thousands of acres. So just multiply by 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 20,000, et cetera per acre, it's, it can mint millionaires pretty quickly. You know, the United States has just been an incredible journey of empowerment that I think it's very difficult to see through in any other place. The fact that a person whom I had the resources from the standpoint of uh, a family that supported me. I had the resources from the, the standpoint that a family that invested in my education. But beyond that, got to, to the United States with pretty much nothing beyond that, which is a lot still. And was able to grow that into starting a business that is doing really well. I think that's a magnificent journey that speaks volumes as to what you can do in the United States that other countries don't necessarily have the culture to allow to do. I was called up for, for jury duty and I found it fascinating. I love the, the fact that the people are given the power to be enablers of the rule of law and I, you know, when I, when I went in I went in with this kind of conception of people telling me, you need to get out of this. Um, you know, like, this is just going to be a waste of your time. And it was actually a case that was going to take several days that I ended up being chosen. And just the people who were chosen took it very seriously. I took it very seriously. And I just thought of, that just speaks so much to what you want 
for yourself if you were put in that position. And it gave me great belief in the system again. It's like, you know, I actually, there's a lot of things that get said and, and there's a lot of things that are wrong. But the fact that these people took it that seriously and I can see that it happens over and over and there are subsets that, that might not, but they don't get chosen, is wonderful. And that's not the case everywhere in the world. I think 90 something percent of, of the murders in, in Venezuela go without any trial which causes all sorts of perverse incentives because now the rule of law is in essence in anybody's hand, whoever has arms and whoever has power. And honestly, very tough case that I, that I got into, but just gave me a continued appreciation for how the rule of law works in the, in the US. The, the, the rule of law, even though it's, it can be very dry, is really the grease that makes the wheel turn. And so, to me, there's the fact that things are able to transact in a way that you don't even have to think when they transact is by the, the, the fact that the rule of law is upheld. And I want to say respected, but it's the respect there's, there's kind of a chicken and the egg of respect and implementation of follow-through if it isn't. So there's that combination. I don't think that there's people in other countries that respect the rule of law less than they do here in the United States. I just believe that there has been a continuation of implementation of if you don't, these things will happen that allow for this kind of thought process of yes, why would we not respect it? Because these consequences would happen and you don't even think about the consequences, even though in the back of your mind, the fact that you think this needs to be respected is because at some point in time, somebody within your structure of influence thought about those consequences or saw them in action. And speaking of action, what does Luis think about all of the action going on in his native Venezuela? Will all of the government's failures, all of the protests, and most of the world calling for tyrant Nicolas Maduro to leave power finally lead to the end of this socialist dictatorship? I'm cautiously optimistic with things that are happening in Venezuela, but have been cautiously optimistic for a very long time now. And so I just, you know, I kind of temper my optimism with the fact that I've had it for 20 years and, and had to have decoupled it from the fact of where my life goes, where my career goes, is you know, in some ways disconnected from where Venezuela goes. But at the same time, everything that I do in my life right now and everything that I do in my career can in some way, shape or form eventually be of help um, when it's needed again. And we want to thank Luis for that remarkable story. And thanks to Alex and to Joey for all the good work they do on the Rule of Law series. And thanks for all the supporters who've made it happen. And we can't do it without you. And my goodness, what a story to tell everybody. He should be out around the country telling his story. And that's why we tell these stories. It's a fascinating thing to watch the media not cover catastrophes that happen around the world. And by the way, all those folks coming here to this country, what are they coming for? It's the rule of law. They don't know it, but that's why they're coming. And it's a remarkable thing our founders did with the Constitution. 
It's a remarkable thing. Our financial markets, the SEC, are, are guarantees to each other that we're going to pay each other when you swipe a credit card, that it works. All the things that we just take for granted. As he put it, and Luis put it beautifully, it's the grease that makes the wheel turn. And you don't see it. It's just there. When you're from someplace where there is no grease and the wheel doesn't turn, my goodness, imagine if Luis had stayed in Venezuela. The last 20 years would have been for naught. 20 years of wasted life, folks. Luis Rodriguez's story, a great rule of law series story, here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories, and now we turn to our This Day in History segment. On This Day in History, Dwight D. Eisenhower died in 1969. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you and your family. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And by the way, the man we're about to talk about, Dwight D. Eisenhower, had quite a resume. West Point graduate, he was one of the great trainers of military personnel, didn't fight, but my goodness, prepared men to fight, ultimately became the supreme allied commander, a pretty important position of all of the European forces. And my goodness, he had quite a task in front of him, absolute victory. That's what the President of the United States demanded, and that's what the people of the United States demanded. And my goodness, he delivered. And he was also the 34th president of the United States of America. And his farewell address, well, it's worth playing today because everyone knows about the military-industrial complex line. But my goodness, he had so much more to say than just that. So here is Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address to the nation in 1961. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Three days from now... After half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. Like every other citizen, I wish the new president and all who will labor with him Godspeed. I pray that the coming years will be blessed with peace and prosperity for all. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the the strongest, the most influential and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interests of world peace and human betterment. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations. 
to strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. Any failure traceable to arrogance or our lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice would inflict upon us grievous hurt, both at home and abroad. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely, and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty, the stake. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration, the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy, balance between the cost and hoped for advantages, balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable, balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual, balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance and progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. We recognize the imperative need for this development. Yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, 
by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. So in this, my last good night to you as your president, I thank you for the many opportunities you have given me for public service in war and in peace. Now, on Friday noon, I am to become a private citizen. I am proud to do so. I look forward to it. Thank you, and good night. And what a speech that was. And, you know, if you wiki that speech or you do a Google search, you're going to hear about the military-industrial complex again and again. And Dwight Eisenhower was properly worried about that. Because, again, as we listen carefully, what he worried about is the intersection of anything in government. And then the, the goal being to simply get the government contract. 
and tell perhaps the government what it wants to hear and vice versa. I'm going to read that one particular part of the speech again as we close. Partly because of the huge cost involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. And he was talking about the universities themselves, and he knew a little about that. He was the president of Columbia University, a great Ivy League college, before he became president of the United States of America. This day in history, President Dwight D. Eisenhower died in 1969. The story of his farewell address, here on Our American Stories.